Everybody's week been good? Yes, All right. Again, we're going to continue in our Emmaus Road series, and we've made it all the way to the prophet Joel. And Joel is the first book, really, that we've uh, reached to where it's small enough that we can cover everything in this book, in, and I intend to read every verse of this book. It's three chapters. They're not terribly long. They're not particularly short, but there's a lot in here, and we'll go over it and, um, and talk about this. <clears throat> Up to this point, the, just the content has just been um, too vast for us to cover. But again, in this series, what we're aiming to do is to take every book of the Bible and show, particularly from the Old Testament, how it points to Christ and His fulfillment. When He tells the disciples on the Emmaus Road... He says that all scriptures point to me. So we're going to look and see where we can find Christ in the gospel in every book. So with that, let me pray for us and then we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for these students. I pray, Father, that as we work through your word tonight and what you have spoken through the prophet Joel, that you would... Your spirit would be among us, that you would teach us from your word. May we honor and glorify you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, again, it's important, I think, because up to this point, now we're jumping out of order. I, um, we start with Genesis and we work all the way to um, Nehemiah, Esther, Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. And that's kind of the end, so to speak. Actually, it's, it, it, it carries on further in Second Chronicles. It's, it's kind of the end of the history of the kingdom of Israel. Um, and the prophets, it carries us up to the silence, is what I say. When, when the Lord stopped speaking with the prophet Malachi, that time frame. And each of the prophets prophesied in Israel and Judah... <laughs> during different portions of their history, some prior to the exile, some during the exile, and then some post-exile. But the prophets, and you will find that the prophets' message is the same. They say it in different ways, but it's the same. So there's a pattern that is established by Scripture. It's established throughout the te uh, the. Uh, the the historical narratives, and it's established in the prophecies. So, again, a brief history, real quick. We start out, and something has gone wrong in the garden. God creates everything, He says it's good. He says it's very good. And then sin, and we fall. And at that point, we're looking for um, the one that is promised that will crush the head of the serpent, which is Satan. So we progress along and God raises up people and we highlight them. He raises up um, from Adam, we get Seth. We get the lineage from Adam to Noah, we get Noah, and then we get his sons. And we are introduced to Abraham and the covenant promises that are made with him. And the covenant promise that is made with Abraham has a purpose in it. And if you remember, 
The covenant promise when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans was, I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to the nations through your son. That's awesome. But Abraham was old. He had no children. So the miracle child comes from Abraham. God ratifies a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And we see the vision of the flaming torch and the smoking pot, and it passes through the carcasses, saying it basically, if I don't fulfill this promise, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. So normally that would be God ratifying with Abraham, and Abraham would walk through with God. And if Abraham fails, death. But God shows His mercy and His grace in that He alone goes through that. And we see how wise that is because in Genesis 16 we see how far Abraham got with that. He immediately decides to take matters into his own hands and he's going to try to make his promise come about on his own. And that does not go well. So we've got sin and disobedience throughout the history of Israel. Well... We raised up a king, David. David comes, he and Solomon, and there's pros- uh, Israel prospers as a, a, a nation that is united. Um, for about 80 years under both of them. But the sin of David causes, uh, the sin of David and then the sin of his son Solomon and the sin of the people causes the nation to divide. And from the divided kingdom, we see the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And from that moment on, Israel is never united again as a nation. They are never brought back as one whole nation that has a king that rules, an earthly king that rules over them. They are ruled separately. And if you remember Pastor Tim, and he will, these are dates that you should remember. He mentioned it last week. The northern kingdom is, falls into captivity uh, in what year? Anybody want to take a guess? They were the first to fall, and it wasn't, wasn't very long. Israel falls, the northern kingdom falls into to the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C., And then followed several more years later, the southern kingdom of Judah falls to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So here in Joel, Joel is one of the early prophets. We really don't know when Joel prophesied because other than at the beginning him introducing himself as the prophet Joel and who his father was, there's not many time indicators that would give us an idea of exactly when he wrote or prophesied. Um, Most of the evidence is prior to or during or uh, prophesied to Judah prior to their exile but after um, the Assyrian exile from the northern kingdom. So scholars have it anywhere from the 9th century B.C. which would have been in the 800s to anywhere to the as, as late as the 5th century, which would have been post-exile. 
Uh, but we're going to go with, I believe it was sometime prior to Judah being led into captivity, but that um, it would have been during after the fall of the northern kingdom. So let's start. Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to, the, to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eating. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eating. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying, destroying locust has eaten. So at this point, we're getting... What, are, what does locust bring to mind for you? Go ahead, Aiden. Destruction. Destruction, okay. Where in the Bible have we seen locusts before? Well, there's more than one, but it's kind of a, a big, big time. Go ahead, Lydia. In Egypt. Egypt, okay. That's correct. Well, what... Are locusts? What does their damage? What are, are are they damaging? They indeed they are. So here we're using imagery. I believe here that Joel is actually describing a physical plague of locusts that has eaten and that does what locusts do. They eat vegetation. They lay waste to land. If you have a swarm in a plague, which is many, just like in Egypt. They eat and destroy everything. In our day, that would be difficult. Because we are not as agricultural as a society as they are, but we still rely on people planting crops for us to eat. We're just not all involved. We don't, rely, we don't have our own gardens at home that we feed ourselves with. But in their day, when you eat the crops and the, it was destroyed, it's a problem and it's a big problem so continuing he says awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth what wine comes from grapes locusts destroy land and destroy the crops there's no more wine so he's t calling them to lament to, to weep and wail you drunkards, you cannot no, you can no longer numb your pain and mask your sin with drink by being drunk. Because the locusts have destroyed your ability to have wine and become drunkards. Now he's going to shift. The metaphor of locusts will be shifted right here in, chapter, in verse 6. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Okay, we'll stop right there real quick. Again, this is an actual, I believe what he's saying is, again, actual plague of locusts, but he also uses this metaphor of locusts, and this is common also in Scripture, of a great army and nation. And he will use these mixed metaphors that are actually destroying and doing the same thing. Because in that day, when a nation would invade another nation, 
not only would they kill the people and take captive the people, but they would also remove and destroy their ability to live and have commerce. So they would, what the locusts don't destroy, they would destroy. That kind of thing. It's total destruction, whether it's physical locusts in a plague or an actual invading army. And he is talking about this invading army, and I believe this is again talking about the Assyrians. Also keep in mind, we're, we're in prophecy. There is going to be imagery and language, okay? This army of locusts or an actual nation coming against them, does it actually have lioness sharp fangs? It's, it's illustrative of their power and their might and their viciousness, okay? It's, prophecy uses imagery to convey a, um, an actual and a physical reality, physical and spiritual realities. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth, sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Again, with this destruction, it's, it, it tells them to lament. Why? Because in part of their worship, the temple worship that was set up back in the wilderness with um, the, uh, the wilderness generation from the children of Israel being brought out of Egypt into the wilderness and God um, makes a covenant with them in the wilderness, gives them the law, and gives them the tabernacle system at the time that will become a physical building once they reach the promised land. Grain offerings, drink offerings, um, livestock offerings, all of these were needed to go to the temple to worship God. Those have been removed now. So the Lord says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. And sackcloth is, again, it's, they would sackcloth and they would tear their garments or rend their garments in, in sackcloth. It was indicative of mourning. Um, so this is what he's telling them. This is judgment. This is what you are to, to tell the people now. But what does he say back in the beginning? He says, and let your, child, and, and let your children tell their children. Tell it to your children and let their children tell, your tell their children for generations. Tell what the Lord has done among you. And again, an interesting note, we mentioned the locust plague back in Egypt. In Exodus 10, the eighth plague of the locusts, Moses says that, that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he's done so so that his power can be demonstrated that you may tell your children and their children. Again, pass down 
this message of what the Lord has done for you. He has just removed them out of slavery from a very powerful nation. And he did so, and he, not only does he take them out, um, but he basically destroys the nation of Egypt for quite a long time, and, and Israel leaves with the riches of Egypt. Continuing on, we switch in, in verse 13 and um, a call to repentance. It says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Again, what we were just talking about. They're no longer able to worship. They have had that ability removed Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. I, th I find it interesting there that he has them consecrate a fast. Based on what we've just read, the Lord has ordained a fasting for them. Uh, they have... Pretty much had the ability to eat and live removed from them, but again, a call to fasting is a it, it's 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 a worshipful thing. It is something. It is a practice that they would do. But he tells them to consecrate a fast. Why? Alas, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Again, it's desolation. But we must remember that God is sovereign through this. He has caused this calamity to come upon the people. Why? Why does he do this? Go ahead, Aiden. To bring them closer to him. Okay. But further, why, why would he cause such calamity to come upon his people? These are the promised people. These are the physical descendants of Abraham. The one he called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that I will make a great nation from you, and in you all the nations will be blessed. And we fast forward hundreds of years, and here he is bringing, God brought this calamity upon the people. Why? They continue to disobey. They sin and disobedience. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is just. We could stop here, and, and the Lord would be just in what he did. But we remember back at Genesis 15, that covenant he made with Abraham, he swore by himself. So he has his name to defend now. Or he was perfectly justified in cutting these people off and saying, done with it. But 
He made a promise and swore by himself. So we keep that in mind. God is gracious. He knows our weaknesses and we cannot do what he has called us to do apart from him working in us. So we continue in chapter, or yeah, chapter 2. <clears throat> Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. This day of the Lord is going to be something he talks about a lot here. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people like there has never been before, nor will be again after them through, all the, through, uh, through the years of all generations. Talking about um, a day of the Lord coming. The Lord comes in judgments. What we were just talking about. The Lord is doing these things. But I find it very interesting, too. We talked about, again, the plague of the locusts. Bonus points. If anybody knows, what we've already established, there's two more after the locust. Locust is eight. There's ten plagues. What is the next two? Anybody? I'd be very impressed if you get this. Go ahead. Uh, darkness. And? Boils. Firstborn mm. son. Okay. <coughs> The day of the Lord, it says, the day of the Lord, darkness and gloom. Just kind of a neat, kind of again, these patterns throughout Scripture. Matthew says, as before the Lord Jesus died, darkness from the sixth hour on covered the land and the death of the Son of God as He gives up His life on the cross, accomplishing these things for us. I find it very interesting that locusts, and then here we are, the day of the Lord, darkness, and it's all part of this pattern of redemption. Judgment and redemption. One of, the, one of the key patterns that you'll see throughout Scripture is every time God brings His just judgment on a people, there's always grace in it. There's salvation in it. It's meant for our good. We'll talk about it a little bit more here coming, coming up. Uh, continue in verse 3. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Again, imagery. Garden of Eden. What is the Garden of Eden? What does that bring to mind? Paradise. Paradise. Very good. So before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them, desolation. It's imagery. It should put a picture in your mind. All, all, you know, it's, it, it shows the paradise before them, but man, when they finish going through, when God's judgment is, it's desolation behind them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb upon the up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. 
who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can adore, endure it? Again, all of this was imagery. But if you notice, we're talking about the destruction of what I believe he's talking about is the Assyrian army. But whatever army that comes in judgment on a people, it's the Lord's army. It says it's his army. The Lord utters his voice before his army. His army is the one that is causing this because he is the Lord over everything. He is the creator, God. He is sovereign over everything. So even the wicked is under his control in that he, they don't operate outside of his ability to stop it or use it. And in this case, he's using a wicked nation to execute his justice upon his people. Verse 12, now we get a call for them to return to the Lord. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow in anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Again, we talked about the sackcloth back there. Part of their mourning ritual was rending their garments and putting on sackcloth and ashes. He asks them to rend your hearts. I don't want physical worship apart. It's just a ritual or a routine. I want your heart, is what he's saying. Give me your essence, your being, your heart. Who knows whether he will not who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God blow the trumpet in Zion consecrate a fast call a solemn assembly gather the people consecrate the congregation assemble the elders gather the children even nursing infants let the bridegroom leave his room even the bride her cha- and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar let the priest the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is a key way of ending this section. Again, this is a call to return to the Lord. Repent, turn, return to Him. The God that brought your fathers out of Egypt. The God that brought your your people through the wilderness who has made you this great nation the God that you have forsaken return to him but it's, a, it's, it's repeated all of the time the people say when they are met with this it was told to Moses in the wilderness he said Moses comes down off the mountain and I, I'll just start over I'll just start over God said I'll just start over and Moses pleads with him. Very similar to what he says here. Why should the nations say among the peoples, where is your God? Back in this day, nations had gods associated with it. We don't have that today. But there were, each nation would have a deity. And as nation conquered nation, you were forced to adopt that deity. So it's not an uncommon thing that with each, with each unique nation, they had a particular God, a deity that they worshipped. Now they're all false, except for this one. 
So if they are defeated, what are the nations going to say? So your God must not be very powerful because we defeated you. Why couldn't he fight on your behalf? That's the way they thought. When they were successful, their God was defeating their enemies before them. But we have scripture that shows very clearly that God is using those armies for judgment, but he delivers his people. And um, we don't have time to get into it, but there's actually a story in the next that is referred to in the next chapter that's quite fantastic from, again, these old boring books of the Old Testament that we tend to read through. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty awesome stuff. Uh, again, y'all remember the walls of Jericho. How did the walls of Jericho fall? Anybody, real quick? How? Uh, the people marched around them Their screaming had nothing to do with it. The Lord dropped those walls. That's, that's the God we serve. 18, the Lord, <clears throat> then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard to the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will arise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Again, a a few things. We've already read it a few times. Zion is known as a hill or synonymous in Scripture with Jerusalem or Israel. Okay, that's what he, children of Zion, that's what that's referring to. But if you notice here, we're getting this, this reversal of what the plagues have done. He has started to repair, and we're going to continue to see the Lord will repair, that's His grace, repair what He has allowed the locusts and the armies to destroy before them in their judgment. His grace is shown. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow, overflow with wine and oil, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. And there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Again, we're talking about prophecy. God is restoring this. The judgments we read in chapter 1 and this restoration here in chapter 2 also, just as a note. um, Another key chapter, there's a lot of key, all of the chapters of the Bible are important, but Deuteronomy 28 um, is the second giving of the law and God tells the, chil- uh, the, the people of Israel says 
If you obey me, this is the blessings for obeying me. And he lays them out. And that's what these look like. It's very similar to what this is. You will have plenty. You will live in abundance. But if you are not obedient, if you disobey my law, if you turn from me, this is the curses for doing so. And what we read in chapter 1, very similar to what we just read, is it's awful stuff that will come upon this people if they disobey the Lord. So, again, there's patterns in this. You know, Pastor Tim last week mentioned, and he's absolutely right, a systematic theology is good. We need the Bible, we need to understand what's in the Bible. But a systematic theology is another good study tool for us to have to kind of categorize things. What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about the church and the role of, of whatever? It, it systemizes that and puts it in categories for us to use as a study tool go... I know it's in here somewhere where you can go to something like that and have it. But I think another really good study tool, and I think it point, and these more than anything bring out the richness of what God is doing in Scripture and throughout human history, is a biblical theology. And it takes these patterns and themes that we see throughout Scripture and it builds upon them and it shows these, this imagery. And it's, again, this is a great drama, and we are in the midst of a great drama, and it has been orchestrated by the Lord. Again, He's sovereign. He had, he's already at the end. He knows the end from the beginning. He's there. He's orchestrating everything. We don't know what it is, but He's given us clues. He's given us hints. Alright, uh, moving on. This should sound familiar to us. We should have heard this many times. 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what the Apostle Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2. Okay. So he's talking about pouring out of the Spirit. Verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls, upon the, calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. <coughs> Let's look at um, Acts chapter 2. Again, this is a prophet, and if we know sometime as many as 800 to almost 900 years prior to where we are here in Acts, and the Apostle Peter uses this right out of the gate in his uh, sermon. Starting in verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven... Let me back up. The people are accusing 
there's the, the, the sign of tongues. There's, there's people from all nations that have come to, to, back to Jerusalem. And they see these men stand up and they speak and they're hearing them say, uh, speak in their native tongue and they can understand them. So they accused them of being drunk and filled with new wine. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to say what we just read in, prophet, in the prophet Joel. A good rule of thumb when it, in trying to figure out when prophecy is fulfilled, if the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and says... Brothers, no. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter says, no, brothers, they're not drunk as you suppose. But this is what's happening. What the prophet Joel said, this is what you're seeing. He's poured out his spirit. His spirit has descended upon the disciples. They are speaking. And who's present? The nations. All the nations of the earth are represented in Jerusalem and they hear the men speaking and proclaiming Christ in the gospel, all the nations hear this gospel. They're not drunk. And again, we get this cosmic language is common for the Old Testament use of spiritual realities. Shaking of the heavens, the, the moon to blood, the, the sun turned to darkness. These are spiritual realities. These are not things that are actually going to happen. It's, just, it's imagery. It's illustrative of... Because again, Peter says this is what you're seeing now. So not only physically are they hearing people speak their language, the nations are hearing the gospel. As the Lord has promised... But there's spiritual realities being as happening here. Shaking of the heavens. It's cosmic language to illustrate a spiritual reality. There's a physical reality and a spiritual reality of things that are happening. Um, the gates of hell will not prevail against uh, Christ's church. Won't, the Bible clearly says that. What does that mean? Where are the gates of hell? It's a spiritual spiritual. They're real. And every time we gather and we do what we're doing now, when we gather on Sunday, when God's people gather to worship Him in spirit and in truth and, and seeking to honor Him, we shake the very gates and foundations of hell. They hate it. And it's, it's a reality. We need to understand that. There's a spiritual reality that if we could see the spiritual things going on around us, we could not function. We would curl up in the fetal position and could not move. We would be horrified if we could see the spiritual realities going on around us. This is the Bible. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired way of illustrating these great spiritual realities for us. Okay, moving on and wrap up this chapter with that. All right. Too long. All right. <clears throat> for behold, in those days and that time... 
When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine <clears throat> for wine and have drunk it. We've trans transitioned. He's judging the nations now. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and, all, Sidon and all the generations of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own borders. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them and will return your payments on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. This actually happened. This is what I was talking about. Second Chronicles, starting around chapter 17 or 18, we read of King Jehoshaphat, son of Asa. He rules as king in Israel. And it speaks very highly, the Bible of Jehoshaphat was one of the rare instances of a, of a good king among the divided kingdom. It's not an accident that he uses Jehoshaphat here, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Don't know where that is. It's a physical place, but we don't know exactly where that is. But everything he's just said, O Tyre and Sidon, and talking about robbing your temples, these things took place. And you can read about them in the Old Testament history when it speaks of Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles. So he's casting judgment on the nations. This is why I'm going to judge you nations. All right, moving on. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe go go in tread for the winepress is full the vats overflow for their evil is great multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the peoples of Israel. Cast the judgment on the nations. Now, as he closes out, he predicts a glorious future for Judah, and we'll try to wrap this up. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip, drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. 
a couple of things here. He's going to judge the nations. We just talked about the fact that the Lord used wicked nations to judge His people. And for what they did, He will judge them. You say, well, that's not fair. Pastor Tim often says that as sinners, we do what we want to do. Sinful people do what they want to do. He didn't make them do what they did to Israel. They did exactly what they wanted to do. But the Lord is sovereign over those things. And they're still wrong. In the very same way that in the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, he will say that the Lord Jesus was crucified and killed on the cross by wicked and evil men. But it was at the precise time and under the sovereignty of God that God killed him. It was he that did it. They're culpable for what they did. The worst sin in the world. And by the way, the people that sent him to the cross, it's his people that he's pronouncing blessing on. This is the people that crucified the Lord of glory. There's a lot here. One of the patterns, again, that we need to understand is this idea that goes all the way back to Genesis with Abraham, and I will make you a blessing to the nations. The purpose that we have for Abraham's descendants and the people of Israel is to bring about the Messiah. The incarnate Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why they exist. That's, that's why He did what He did, to bring about the Messiah. And he is the fulfillment of these things. So all of these things He's talking about and these curses and uh, the judgment on these foreign nations, they're brought to Jerusalem 50 days after the Lord is um, resurrected from the dead. 50 days after Passover at Pentecost. He has ascended back into heaven. And because it was their pattern to return, the people of Israel, they would return as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover and Pentecost. These feasts. It was an annual thing that they did. But in their disobedience and in their judgment, the Lord scattered them hundreds of years ago along the, around the known world. And in His sovereignty and in His providence, they come back. And at the right time, on the Passover, the Christ, the Lamb of God, dies. And they hear the Gospel on that Pentecost morning as He brings the nations and that pattern has been established and it, it, it continues to this very day. How does the Lord conquer the nations? He judges people by the sword. He will either destroy them with the sword to condemnation or He will, he will uh, use the sword of His Word, the sword of the Spirit that cuts to the heart. That is what they said after that sermon that P Peter preached, it says they were cut to the heart by what they preached, the gospel. Brothers, what must we do to be saved? That's everyone's faith. The nations will be conquered through destruction to eternal damnation, or they will be conquered by the word of the gospel of what Christ has accomplished as He brings the nations in to His holy temple, which is the church.
the people today. It's a pattern he's establishing and he's communicating something. And it's hard and it takes lots of years and to kind of get a grasp on this. You'll never get a full firm grasp on it. You can live to be 120 years old. You're not gonna, you'll never exhaust and understand this word completely. Our God is too awesome for that. But He is gracious and He teaches us. If we're diligent to follow Him and study Him, I encourage you, read your Bibles. Start small. Don't try to start, take big chunks and say, I'm going to start reading my Bible and I'm going to read three, four, five chapters a day. You'll, 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 you'll fade. You'll fade. Start realistic. Read a chapter a day. Pick it up and read a chapter a day. This is an awesome story. It actually happened. And if you start doing these things, I promise you, you're going to run across stuff that goes, wow, that's weird. I have a question. I would love to answer that question. I know Joe would. I know all of these adults around you would love nothing more than for you to come to, me, come to one of us and say, hey, I got something I've been reading and I really don't understand it. Can you help me? I'd love to help you. I'd love to. I may not have the answer for you, but I know, who I, I, know I can find it. Read this story. We're a part of this story. The story is continuing. The nations are being conquered by our enthroned king in heaven. He's ruling and reigning today. We're a part of it. We have been equipped with this, this sword. And every time you wield it, it destroys or saves. And it is not our power, but it is what he is doing. And he will accomplish this whether we participate or not. All right, let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for this opportunity. Father, I thank you for your truth. I, I just, it, I pray that you would work in us a desire to continue to learn and to know you more and that you would be gracious to reveal yourself further and further to us. May we seek to honor and glorify you in all that we do. We ask that you equip us and teach us to follow after you and to take this gospel to the nations. Tell people about Christ and what He has accomplished. And it's His name we ask this. Amen.